Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the discussion of public policy. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help frame policy debates and the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects, from local, municipal concerns to state and even national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Nathan Leaf. And I'm Joe Moravchek. Today on Public Policy This Week, we are going to discuss the important role of a medical examiner. In short, a medical examiner is a physician acting in an official capacity charged with the investigation and examination of persons dying a sudden, unexpected, or violent death and with determining the cause and manner of the death. Because such circumstances encompass the full range of human behavior and biology, broad expertise is necessary to unravel the facts of such a death to assure the greatest quality and integrity in the assessment, to interpret those facts in proper context, and present the facts and conclusions in a logical and effective manner. Massachusetts was the first U.S. state to introduce a medical examiner in 1877 to investigate unnatural and sudden deaths. And it was in 1959 when forensic pathology became a board-certified medical subspecialty. Our guest joining us today in studio has been a practicing forensic pathologist in Minnesota since 2002. That guest is Dr. Andrew Baker, Chief Medical Examiner for Hennepin County. Dr. Andrew Baker is a Mason City, Iowa native, a 1988 graduate of the University of Iowa, and a 1992 graduate of the University of Iowa College of Medicine. He completed his residency in pathology at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics and completed a year of specialized training in forensic pathology in Minneapolis. He is a board certified, or he is board certified in anatomic and clinical pathology with subspecialty certification in forensic pathology. He is a fellow of the College of American Pathologists and previously served on the CAP Forensic Pathology Committee. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences and has served as the chair of the Academy's pathology biology section and on the board of directors and the executive committee. He is a fellow of the National Association of Medical Examiners and previously served as the president and chair of the board of directors of that organization. A distinguished graduate of the U.S. Air Force Commissioned Officer Training Program, Dr. Baker began active duty in the Medical Corps of the United States Air Force in 1998. Events that shaped his military years included work in Kosovo for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, investigation of graves along the U.S.-Mexican border, and identification and autopsy of victims of the terrorist attack on the USS Cole. Dr. Baker also served as a consulting pathologist to the Naval Criminal Investigative Services Cold Case Homicide Unit. Following the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, Dr. Baker's unit was given responsibility for the identification and autopsy of the victims and perpetrators of the American Airlines Flight 77 crash into the Pentagon. Dr. Baker's military awards include the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, the Joint Service Commendation Medal, and the Joint Meritorious Unit Award. Dr. Baker's publications range from analysis of combat casualties of U.S. forces in Somalia to drug intoxications in infants and abusive injuries of children. He has served as a guest lecturer at the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General School, the Naval Justice School, the University of Minnesota Law School, Harvard Law School, the University of Ottawa, the Canadian Association of Pathologists, the Ontario Forensic Pathology Service, and the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia. Dr. Baker began practicing as a full-time forensic pathologist with the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 2002. He was appointed to the position of Chief Medical Examiner for Hennepin County in 2004 and was reappointed in 2008, 2012, 2016, and 2020. In 2013, 
Dr. Baker's office expanded to provide all medical examiner services to Dakota and Scott counties in the metropolitan Twin Cities area. Dr. Baker also holds an appointment at the University of Minnesota. He serves as the treasurer for the Minnesota Coroners and Medical Examiners Association and has previously served on the board of directors of the Innocence Project of Minnesota. Dr. Baker has served as a medical officer with the Region 5 Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team, deploying to Louisiana in 2005 in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Dr. Baker was previously on the Forensic Pathology Test Development Advisory Committee for the American Board of Pathology and the Forensic Science Standards Board of the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Dr. Baker's forensic interests include management of mass fatalities, investigation of fatal child abuse, investigation of sudden deaths in children and young adults, and the future of the U.S. medical examiner workforce. When not working, his interests include public school science education, travel, reading, scouting, musical theater, and Iowa Hawkeyes basketball. He is an exercise enthusiast and a three-time qualifier for the Boston Marathon he is married happily and has three children. Dr. Andrew Baker, welcome to Public Policy This Week on KYMN. Thanks. It's great to be here. We're glad you made it in. And you have one impressive CV. We're really happy to have you here today. Thank you. Well, let's, let's get into it. Uh, in our first segment, let's talk about your education and your background Dr. Baker, go back to the 1980s when you were in medical school at the University of Iowa. What was your inspiration for medical school? How did you become interested in pathology? My inspiration for medical school started when I was a little kid. Um, I was a pretty good student, and growing up in small-town Iowa, if you were a pretty good student, people pushed you to law school, graduate school, medical school. It was just sort of natural. Um, my first family doctor in small town, Iowa was a larger than life character. My mom actually worked for him for a couple of years as a nurse. As I got older, my personal family physician was also a pillar of the community, sang in the church choir. Everybody knew him. When I got even older than that, when I got really active in scouting as a kid, my scout master was a revered local pediatrician. And mm -hmm. so throughout my whole life, I kind of had physicians who served as role models for me. So it was just natural for me to want to go to medical school. I was always fascinated by science. I was always fascinated by medicine. When I got into medical school, I actually went with the intention of becoming a pediatric urologist. Hmm. And like a lot of people who go to medical school, you go into the pipeline thinking you're going to be one thing, and you come out of the pipeline doing something completely different because you become fascinated by something in medicine. For me, it was pathology because pathology is the underpinning of virtually all of clinical medicine. We're the behind-the-scenes doctors that give your doctor the information she needs to know to diagnose and treat you. And I just I loved the fact that pathology was, in many senses, the most objective, the most black and white of all the medical specialties. You know, we're, we're looking for answers under the microscope, running the laboratories, and we get to help solve mysteries, and that really appealed to me. Hmm. Foundational, then to the field of medicine as part of its appeal. Yeah, it, re it really is the underpinning of virtually all of clinical medicine, and that's why when I was in medical school, you got three semesters of pathology because you had to understand the basis of human disease if you were going to take care of people for a living. Hmm. Dr. Baker, you're board certified in anatomic and clinical pathology, and you have specialty training in forensic pathology. Explain what anatomic and clinical pathology is, and maybe you can explain the difference between pathology and forensic, specifically forensic pathology. Sure. So anatomic pathology is the diagnosis of human disease by looking at tissue under a microscope. It could be something as simple as a pap smear, where you're looking at a few hundred cells. It could be something as complicated as an entire organ that's been removed from a patient because there's a tumor or a mass in that organ. We pathologists are the people that look at those tissues under the microscope, and we call your treating physician up and we say, hey, Joe's condition is benign, or hey, Nathan's condition is infectious, or so-and-so's condition is malignant. We're the people that make those calls. That's anatomic pathology. Mm -hmm. Clinical pathology is the diagnosis of disease or monitoring of conditions through laboratory work. So clinical pathology is everything from running the blood banks to running the lab that counts your white blood cells to managing the machines that measures the, the glucose. 
in your bloodstream. That's, that's clinical pathology. 99% of people who go into pathology wear both of those hats and they work in a hospital or laboratory environment. Again, they're the behind the scenes physicians that provide your doctors with the answers they need to know to treat you. Forensic pathology is a subspecialty within the field of anatomic pathology where our primary tools are performing autopsies and running death investigations because ultimately our mission is to figure out who people were and why those people died. Mm. To practice forensic pathology, you have to be trained in anatomic pathology first and board certified in it before you can become certified in forensic pathology. Um, like all medical specialties, there are multiple subspecialties within pathology. Forensic pathology just happens to be one of those. Uh, one of your interests and areas of expertise is mass casualty events. While you were in the Air Force, you worked on cases in the former Yugoslavia in the, in the 1990s where war crimes of mass executions and civilian massacres were being investigated. And you worked the USS Cole bombing in Yemen in the fall of 2000 where 17 of our sailors were killed and over 40 were injured in a terrorist attack on a, on a Navy destroyer. You also worked the Flight 77 investigation, the hijacked plane that hit the Pentagon in September of 2001, killing 184 Americans. Why is it important for a medical examiner to be a part of a, the investigative team in a mass casualty event and explain your role in this type of event? And how did you become interested in working these types of events? Well, I certainly didn't set out to become interested in those type of events early in, in my career, but the nature of what I was doing in the military sort of thrust those events upon me. So, for example, in 1999, when I was deployed to Kosovo, I was not even two years out of training yet, really too young to realize the gravity of what I was doing or, or the, even the danger we were in, really, and in going into a country that had just been a war zone weeks earlier. But uh, you know, to the question about why a medical examiner is important in a mass fatality event, there's a couple of reasons. The most important reason is everybody has to be properly identified, mm -hmm. and we are the experts in human identification. Almost by definition in a mass fatality event, no one's going to be visually identifiable. You're not going to hold a driver's license up to a decedent after a plane crash and say, oh yes, I'm sure this is the right person. You gotta have the expertise with the dental identifications. You've gotta understand when to bring in the fingerprint experts. You need to know how to collect the proper specimens to send to the DNA lab. It's the combination of those scientific forms of identification that's going to give you the answers as to who these individuals were. In some mass fatality events, the complexity is magnified exponentially because people are fragmented. So for example, in 9-11, you were dealing with individuals who were fragmented into dozens, if not scores, of body parts. And every one of those parts that is recovered needs to be scientifically identified if humanly possible. And again, it's the expertise of a forensic pathologist overseeing that operation that's going to make sure those identifications get properly made. That's the single most important reason you need a medical examiner in a mass fatality event. Autopsies are very important in these circumstances, too, because we need to know why each individual died. What was the nature of their injuries? Was there any contributing role of underlying natural diseases or other conditions that person had? Months, even years after the events, there may be legal actions, and questions are going to come into you know, things like, did this person suffer? How long could this person have survived? Had there been a faster medical response, is it possible this person might not have died? Absent an autopsy, you're never going to be able to answer questions like that. So um, thinking for our listeners, we could bring current events into this. And, and I'm thinking of this past week where there was a terrible wild, wildfire on the island of Maui. Um, over 80 Hawaiians are dead as a result of that fire. I'd imagine that a team of medical examiners has been dispatched there. And so I'm curious, what will be the work that takes place there for the team of medical examiners? Well, again, the, the single most important thing that they're going to need to do is to make sure that everyone is properly identified and accounted for. Ideally, everyone will get an autopsy. Practically, that may not be possible in some circumstances. It really just depends on the workforce that you have and how many decedents that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. But you absolutely do need to make sure that everybody is properly identified. Um, given how many of these individuals died of what we call thermal injuries, which is just fancy medical lingo for burns, 
you're almost certainly going to be utilizing dental records and DNA to make a lot of those identifications. Um, the situation in Maui will be in some ways even more complicated than, for example, the 9-11 work that I did following the attack on the Pentagon because Maui is what we call an open population. You don't actually know exactly who you're looking for or who is missing. It's, it's an open-ended problem. It's very different than when an airplane crashes into a very secure building because you know exactly who is in the building and you know exactly who is on board the aircraft. That's known as a, as a closed population. I'm not saying it's an easy operation, but at least you have a finite number of people that you're looking for, and you know when you've made the final identification. Um, very, very different than a Maui situation, or even a New York City 9-11 situation, which is also an open population. You never know with certainty when you've made the last identification. So that's always something you have to keep in mind in these mass fatality events. While in the Air Force, you worked in a cold case homicide unit. What is a cold case? And in your decades now of experience, what are some of the advances in technology that have allowed for more success in solving cold case crimes? So I'm not law enforcement, but my understanding of a cold case is a case that's known to be a homicide but has remained unsolved for years, maybe even decades, or a case that was highly suspicious that was a homicide but maybe wasn't recognized at the time, but years later, new evidence has come to light, making it clear that the, the death was a homicide. That, that would be my understanding of a cold case. And I was really fortunate that I made friends with some folks in the, the real NCIS, not the one on TV, but the real <laughs> Naval Criminal Investigative Service. And if they were investigating a cold case homicide based on new evidence, they, they would call me and send me the original autopsy, the photos, the x-rays, et cetera, and I would sort of get to be part of the team and advise them about the evidence that was collected at autopsy, what it means, what's the nature of this person's injuries, and I got to help them solve a couple of cases while I was active duty, which was really, really rewarding. Hmm. Oh, and, and to, to follow up to your question about you know what technologies are really helping solve cold cases, the obvious answer is DNA. I mean, DNA has absolutely revolutionized our ability to look at evidence that was collected 15, 20, 30 years ago that we couldn't analyze at the time, but now it contains a suspect or a perpetrator's DNA. And is that, uh, not to get too detailed, but is that mainly blood and hair, or is it everything, saliva, you name it? Uh, again, I'm not a crime, certainly not a crime lab expert or a law enforcement expert. The cases that I, I've been involved with were primarily solved with blood that was found at the scene, mm -hmm. But if a sexual assault was a component of a particular death, it could be other body fluids that would be very useful as well. Right. Regular listeners to our program know that I'm a retired police officer, including being a part of a major crimes unit. Part of why I wanted to be a police officer was to protect the least amongst us. An important aspect of the mission for me was to protect people that have a hard time protecting themselves. Another of your forensic pathology areas of expertise is abuse injuries and deaths in children. Can you explain what your work is about regarding this subject and why this area of study is important to you? So one of the things forensic pathologists do is we speak for the dead. I mean, we tell the stories of decedents that they obviously can't tell themselves. And if we're not doing our jobs, if we're not doing an autopsy, then we're not gonna know why people died and their families and their communities are not gonna have answers. We have to be cognizant of the fact that there are people in the world who are vulnerable by nature of their age, by nature of infirmity, by nature of the fact that they are incarcerated or in custody, and we have to take those deaths even more seriously as forensic pathologists. And in my case, that's particularly true for, for children. Um, I did early in my career develop some expertise in evaluation of fatal child abuse. Again, it wasn't something I set out to do. Mm -hmm. I just happened to see quite a bit of it during my training. And in my early years in the military, the unit I was with, some of the folks I worked with would rather not do the child abuse autopsies, and they would prefer to let me do them. And so I ended up probably doing more than my share and developed some expertise in interpreting injuries, uh, interpreting the interplay between natural disease and injuries and understanding why children died. 
The world, of course, recently experienced a novel coronavirus pandemic, which made its way to the U.S. in early 2020. Does forensic pathology have a role in public health related to an epidemic or a pandemic? And does your office have to take safety measures for cases involving potential infectious diseases? So medical examiner offices absolutely have a role in public health. In fact, we consider ourselves the silent arm of public health. Um, The fact that we get involved in the criminal justice system is really just kind of an off-label use of of our practice. 95% of the deaths that we investigate as medical examiners fall within the realm of public health. Only 5% of what we investigate turn out to be homicides. Mm. Most people in the public are surprised to hear that because the only time you hear about the medical examiner in the news is a press release about a murder or a medical examiner testifying in a homicide case. To your question about pandemics and emerging infectious diseases, yes, we take those very seriously as medical examiners. We're In some ways, we're the canary in the coal mine because when somebody dies suddenly and unexpectedly, we always have to consider the possibility, is this a novel pathogen in our community? In the case of my office, we have a very close relationship with the Minnesota Department of Health. We participate in a program where we routinely screen decedents for a variety of different infectious agents by collecting blood, by collecting swabs of the lungs, and sending those to the Department of Health to test for a variety of pathogens. Mm Specifically with regard to the the coronavirus pandemic, um, interestingly, the overwhelming majority of COVID deaths do not fall under medical examiner jurisdiction because they're individuals who are dying of known natural causes in a healthcare setting, so they wouldn't even be reported to the medical examiner. Now, we did a lot of autopsies on COVID cases early in the pandemic because we had individuals who got ill, decided to try to ride it out at home, didn't get medical care, and then when they passed away, because no one really knew with certainty why they died, they did fall under our jurisdiction. And so we learned a lot about the pathology of what COVID was doing to people's lungs, to their immune system, to their brains, to their coagulation system from those early autopsies. And like a lot of medical examiners, we participated in protocols with the Centers for Disease Control, where we would look at certain tissues under the microscope and collect certain blocks of tissue that might eventually be used for research. Our biggest concern early on, well, two biggest concerns really in the early days of the COVID pandemic were the safety of our own staff and how are we going to house this many decedents. With regard to staff safety, in my office, we immediately pivoted to N95 masks for all of our investigators because they were still going out in the field. They're still interacting with law enforcement, with EMS, with decedents' families, and so we had to keep them safe by giving them the best available protection. Like everyone in healthcare, we had a shortage of N95 masks, and so we were doing things like making sure the masks got radiated so you could get more use out of it than the one-time use. In terms of the safety for the physicians and the technicians actually performing the autopsies, we pivoted from disposable surgical masks to what are called PAPRs, which is basically a a personal respirator that you wear on your lower back that blows purified air over a hood that you're wearing on your face. The upside is it's 100% protection against any respiratory pathogen. The downside is and it's an extra 15 pounds that you're wearing on your back when you're already standing six or seven hours a day on a rock-hard floor doing autopsies. Yeah. Um, we're still wearing PAPRs to this day. We've just, we've just gotten used to it. We have to assume that everybody's a potential uh, infectious case. Hmm. Oh, and I, I mentioned you know housing the decedents. In my office, in our former location in downtown Minneapolis during the pandemic, even though most uh, COVID deaths didn't fall under my jurisdiction, my office was the morgue for Hennepin County Medical Center. We had a contractual obligation to store all of their decedents in our cooler. And it was pretty tight in the early days of the pandemic. I mean, we had limited storage capacity. We had a lot of people passing away from COVID. We did manage to get a refrigerated truck and put it on the back of our building. And between that and adding some shelving inside our cooler, we did just manage to squeak by in the early days of the pandemic. And, and, and of course, like everyone, we were watching the coverage out of New York City. We saw all the white medical examiner trucks lining the streets of Midtown Manhattan and thinking, there but for the grace of God, that could be our medical examiner's office. Yeah. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Joe Moravchik. 
Our guest today is Dr. Andrew Baker, Chief Medical Examiner for Hennepin County. Dr. Baker's office also provides all medical examiner services to Dakota and Scott counties in southern Minnesota as well. We are discussing the important work of the medical examiner's office. Dr. Baker, what is a coroner, and how is a medical examiner different from a coroner? The coroner system is a system that we inherited here in North America under British common law when we became an independent country in the late 1700s. The coroner system actually dates back to about 1100, and it was formed by the King of England. The crown had an interest in knowing how and why people died, because depending on the nature of your death, that would dictate how much of your estate had to be forfeited to the crown. So, for example, if you committed suicide, your estate taxes were going to be higher than if you died of natural causes. And so the king created the office of the coroner, which is derived from the word crowner, representing the crown, to hold inquests, to impanel a, a jury of citizens to decide, have we properly identified this decedent and what is the nature of this person's death? So we kind of inherited that system wholesale here in the United States in the late 1700s. As you alluded to, in the late, mid to late 1800s, Massachusetts became the first state to say, you know, maybe we should modernize death investigation and make it part of a medical practice as opposed to an elected lay individual from the community. So the movement to transition to medical examiners got a big groundswell of support in the late 1950s when the National Commission for uh, Uniform State Laws published some model legislation that was pushed out to all 50 states that gave states the option of upgrading from a coroner system to a medical examiner system, to formalizing the way that we investigate deaths, to make it a medical specialty. And a lot of states did change from coroner systems to medical examiner's systems in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Uh, Minnesota did not do that, although Hennepin County did in late 1962 transition from a coroner system to a medical examiner system. If you look at America where we are today, Many states still have coroner systems. Um, coroners serve at the county level. They are elected individuals. In most states, the requirements to be the coroner are a minimum age. Typically, it's 21. You have to be a registered voter. You have to live in the county in which you hope to serve. You have to have a high school diploma or the equivalent thereof, and it's an elected position. Now, that should give you pause, if you think about it, that there are many places in this country where the police may find a dead body on the edge of town under suspicious circumstances, and the person who decides if there's going to be an autopsy and how that death is going to get certified is a 21-year-old with a high school diploma. Now, we still here in the state of Minnesota, we still have a mixed coroner and medical examiner system. Um, all of the metropolitan Twin Cities, um, Rochester, uh, up north around Duluth, St. Louis County have medical examiner systems, but we do still have many counties in the state of Minnesota that have coroners. We have an advantage over most states because we require our coroners in Minnesota to be licensed physicians. And in many places in greater Minnesota, the coroner may be one of the few doctors in that entire county, an emergency room physician, pediatrician, family doctor, who clearly is serving out of the goodness of their heart. Nobody is doing this for the money or the glory. Minnesota law also allows counties to appoint their coroners through their county boards rather than have them run for office. So Minnesota's coroner system is different than most of the United States. Um, in some of the older states in America, one of the reasons they can't just transition from a coroner system to a medical examiner system is the state is so old that the coroners are in the state's constitution. So it's not just a matter of passing a state statute that says, hey, let's upgrade our system to a medical examiner system. It would actually require a constitutional amendment. When there is a sudden or unexpected death or a violent death, when is the medical examiner's office first called and who makes that call? As a chief medical examiner, do you make the scene of a suspicious death yourself or is it perhaps investigators or deputies within your office that make the scene and what determines whether or not there will be an autopsy? So a lot of great questions in there. Um, my office will get notified by law enforcement if the person dies outside of a hospital 
or typically by a nurse or a ward clerk if the person dies in a hospital. Uh, many medical examiner cases do make it to the emergency room or even the operating room or a hospital ward before they pass away. So not everybody is found dead at home or on the streets or, or in a car. So there's a variety of different people that may report a death to the medical examiner's office. Under Minnesota statute, any death that is sudden or unexpected or appears to be due to any cause other than natural disease has to be reported to the medical examiner for investigation. The person who's going to answer that phone on my end is going to be one of the death investigators that works in my office. And I've got a team of about 20 death investigators that staff the office 24-7, 365. There is always somebody available to answer the phone. There is always somebody available to respond to a death scene if needed. Uh, my investigators uh, make very good decisions about which cases require a scene investigation and which cases can simply be released directly from the scene to a funeral home because there's no concern that the death is anything other than natural. Um, Minnesota Statutes Chapters 390 dictates what cases have to be reported to the medical examiner. It doesn't dictate who needs an autopsy. That's the call of the physicians at the medical examiner's office. And we have a very clear set of guidelines in our office, and so everyone knows exactly which cases need to be brought in for an autopsy and which cases don't need to be brought in for an autopsy. So, for example, any case that's, that's believed to be potentially a homicide, obviously that person's going to get an autopsy. Um, workplace deaths, going to get an autopsy. Traffic fatalities, where the person didn't make it to the hospital, didn't have enough imaging or surgery to document their injuries, going to be brought in for an autopsy. Sudden unexplained deaths of children, going to be brought in. Potential threats to the public health, going to be brought in. Dr. Baker, explain for our audience what cause of death is and what manner of death is. So cause of death is simply whatever diseases or injuries caused the person to die. And there's almost an infinite list of potential causes of death running the gamut from blocked coronary arteries causing a heart attack to multiple gunshot wounds and everything in between. If you were to look at a blank death certificate, you would see there's actually four lines where we can enter the cause of death. And so we can paint a very clear picture for the reader of that death certificate what this person's cause of death was. So for example, it could be sepsis due to decubitus ulcer, due to spinal cord injury, due to remote gunshot wound. That would paint a very clear picture for the reader as to exactly what the logical sequence was of this person's cause of death. Manner of death is the circumstances under which the person died. And that is a single question, multiple choice item on the death certificate. You have to indicate this death is either natural, it's an accident, it's a suicide, it's a homicide, or in a tiny percentage of cases, you leave it undetermined, meaning we don't actually know the circumstances under which this person died. That's what manner of death is. An important distinction is manner of death is not a legal determination for the purposes of the criminal justice system. It is a public health function of the medical examiner where we indicate for our state health department which bucket this death should go in. Because if you think about it from a public health point of view, you need to know how many of your fellow Minnesotans committed suicide last year. That's an incredibly important public health metric. If we weren't capturing manner of death, we wouldn't know that. Uh, Dr. Baker, walk us through the process of an autopsy and how you ultimately determine whether a death is the result of natural causes, an accident, and a suicide or homicide. Please thoroughly explain what takes place during an autopsy and why each aspect of it is important. So I'll use the most complicated example to answer your question, and that would be a case that's believed to be a homicide. So a gunshot wound victim is brought to the medical examiner's office. We're concerned that the death is likely a homicide. So the first thing that's going to happen is that individual is going to be placed in a body bag at the scene of death, and a locking tag will be put on the zippers of that bag. The only person who's allowed to open that bag at the medical examiner's office is the physician performing the autopsy. And so that sealed tag is how you start your chain of custody for that decedent. Prior to that tag even being opened by the physician, that individual is going to get x-rayed. Or in the case of my office now, because we have a brand new facility, that person's going to get a CT scan. Because we need to know exactly where the projectile and the projectile fragments are in that person's body so that we don't miss any 
evidence. You know, that single piece of jacket that's in that person's chest may have the rifling marks that helps the crime lab link that particular round back to some particular weapon or suspect. So that's the first step in the autopsy is making sure that you properly image the decedent. When the physician starts the exam, he or she is going to document all of the clothing the decedent is wearing. They're going to document any medical intervention the decedent had. And depending on the nature of the case, we may be collecting trace evidence, swabbing the decedent's hands for blood or other body fluids, collecting a sexual assault kit, clipping their fingernails, taking some hair samples. All of those things are placed in labeled envelopes, sealed in our office, and then a chain of custody is started before we release those to a crime lab. Once all the clothing is removed, then we document the body in an as-is condition, photographing every square inch of that person front and back. Then we meticulously clean the body off because you can't have any wounds obscured by hair or blood or other body fluids or leaves or other debris that may have gotten on the decedent at the scene of death. And then we photograph the decedent again, head to toe, and we take close-up photographs of all that person's injuries. That last set of photographs we take is the one that you're most likely to see if you're sitting on a jury, because that's how I'm going to show the jury this is the nature of this particular individual's gunshot wound or stab wound or bruise or whatever the case might be. So everything I just described is, is the external component mm -hmm. of the autopsy. Then we move to the internal component of the exam, which is what most people probably think of when they hear the word autopsy. And that's where we make a set of very carefully placed incisions on the body that allow us to remove all of the organs one by one. The reason we do it that way is A, it allows us to track wound pathways through the body because you have to see if the bullet went through the liver or the heart or the lungs. That's how you know which entrance wound matches up with each exit wound. Second thing you're doing when you're removing those organs is we're looking for any evidence of natural disease that may have played a role in contributing to this person's death. We are also collecting our toxicology specimens at that point because we want to make sure we get blood and urine and certain other fluids on every decedent because toxicology testing is so important to what we do. As we look at each of these organs, we do take a small biopsy of each one. Um, that biopsy is about the size of a nickel. And that's what we're going to be able to look at under the microscope to make sure we're not missing a disease that you couldn't see with the naked eye, like a pneumonia in the lung or a meningitis in the brain or something like that. Once we've examined all the organs, all of those do go back into the decedent's body, and then that body is sewn up prior to release of that body to the funeral director of the family's choice. Um, once we're done with the physical part of the autopsy, there's almost never a reason for us to need to keep that body any longer, and so it's available for release to the funeral home as soon as the family would wish. Um, the autopsy itself is going to take at least several more weeks because we need to curate all the photographs we took. We need to dictate a very lengthy report of everything we did and did not see during the autopsy and how it was documented. And in most cases, the rate-limiting step nowadays for the turnaround time on the autopsy report is the toxicology testing because it's just so much more complex than it used to be. So long-winded answer, but those are all the steps that go into performing an autopsy. Can we go back to natural causes of death? I mean, manner of death. So I'm thinking about COVID here because there was some controversy there about how you classify cause of deaths, right? And, and what I'm specifically interested in is heart attack as a result of coagulation from COVID versus this is a death caused by COVID. And, and now there's some of that controversy with heat stroke as a result of elevated temperatures. I think they were talking about in Italy, 16,000 deaths last year that they reclassified due to heat, but it was other physical manifestations that, that, um, weren't necessarily labeled as heat stroke initially. Can you talk about that controversy a little bit and, and classifying causes of death? Well, COVID, at least from my point of view, wasn't that difficult to diagnose because we either had a medical history that the person was known to have COVID from their anti-mortem medical records, or we were very liberally swabbing our decedents for COVID and MDH was doing that COVID testing for us for free. And so we could tell if someone had COVID. And if COVID triggered 
an exacerbation of that person's underlying natural disease. I mean, maybe that person already had emphysema, maybe that person already had a bad heart, mm -hmm. and COVID's what pushed them over the edge. We would still get COVID on their death certificate somewhere, if not the direct cause of death. We also have a separate line on the, uh, the death certificate where we can indicate contributing causes of death. And so we could certainly capture COVID on a death certificate as contributing to that person's death, even if their primary issue was, again, their underlying heart disease, their emphysema, whatever it is that put them at risk for something like COVID precipitating their death. Hyperthermia deaths are, can be really difficult to diagnose because, again, people who suffer from hyperthermia often have underlying natural diseases that put them at higher risk for being susceptible to higher temperatures. So take, for example, an older individual with emphysema found in their locked home, where when they are found dead, they're already starting to decompose a little bit when the police do their welfare check. And you do their autopsy and you find they've got terrible heart disease, they've got emphysema. It's hard to know in any individual case whether that specific death was due to hyperthermia. But one of the things you can do is step back and look at your population data and say, during that heat wave, did we have more deaths than you would predict during a, a normal period of time. And if you do, then you can be fairly sure that you had hyperthermia deaths in there, even if you don't know specifically which ones were that, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. You're really looking for, do we have excess mortality that we can't explain any other way other than the, this environmental exposure? In addition to police investigators, who else do you work with in a death investigation? And can you tell us what a toxicology lab and toxicology report is? So we do work with law enforcement, but the way I would describe it is that we work in parallel. Law enforcement is obviously wants to find out whether this death is the result of criminal activity or not. That's not the medical examiner's call, that's a law enforcement call. The medical examiner's job is to figure out who this person was and why that person died. So those are parallel tracks. And in the state of Minnesota, I just want to get this out there, the medical examiner is completely independent of law enforcement. That's that's in state statute and it's all all sorry, it's also in a 2010 Minnesota Supreme Court ruling that medical examiners are completely autonomous, neutral and independent of uh, law enforcement or prosecutorial offices. Mm -hmm. So for example, the sheriff, the chief of police have no role in deciding whether I get to keep my job. The county attorney has no say when it's time for me to get reappointed by the county board. And that's very, very important that your medical examiner is not unduly influenced by law enforcement or the prosecutor's office. And that's a protection for law enforcement and the prosecutor as well, because they don't want to be in the position of having it look like the medical examiner is covering up something for them. They want You want your medical examiner to be completely independent when he or she classifies a death in a particular way. So with regard to the other folks that we work with, our most important partners are our clinicians in the community because we need them to make sure they report cases to us when people die in hospitals. We need them to provide us the medical records we need to properly certify their patients' deaths. Dentists in our community are very, very important to us because they're providing us the x-rays and the dental records that allow us to make identifications. The crime lab is an important partner if we're looking for DNA results or something else from a particular death scene. And you mentioned toxicology, which is absolutely critical in a modern death investigation system. I mean, everyone listening to this radio program knows we are in the middle of a drug fatality epidemic in America. And the only way we get those death investigations right is through the partnership we have with our toxicologists and their laboratories. What is trace evidence and what are examples of the types of external and internal evidence that you consider dur during an autopsy or an investigation? The sorts of trace evidence that medical examiners are most concerned with is going to be anything that's on the decedent's body or clothing that may have been transferred to them by a potential suspect or by the environment in which that person was killed. So it could be insects, could be hair, could be fiber, could be body fluids. 
the routine trace evidence that we collect on any potential homicide case includes a sample of the decedent's hair. We clip the decedent's fingernails because that could have an assailant's DNA underneath them. And if the situation warrants it, we will collect a full sexual assault kit on the decedent as well. Less commonly, but if we do see things on the decedent's body that look like, for example, hair that does not belong to the decedent, or blood that's on the decedent's hands that may have come from someone else, or any other fiber type of evidence, we're going to collect that, we're going to put that in an evidence envelope, and we're going to make sure that goes to the crime lab. Dr. Baker, your education is in anatomic and clinical pathology with a subspecialty in forensic pathology. Do you also have to have special training in blood spatter, certainly fractures, fingerprints, and gunshot wounds? So we do get exposed to all of those things and more during our training. So, for example, in my office, the fellowship that I did back in 1997, the fellowship that we still run to this day, we make sure that our fellow gets to spend a week or two with the crime lab. Mm -hmm. So they go to scenes and they actually see what crime lab techs do. So they see how blood spatter is documented, how latent fingerprints are collected, how things are swabbed for DNA, how different forms of UV light and different chemicals are used to detect blood that may be uh, not visible to the naked eye at a death scene. So all forensic pathologists get exposed to that not because we're trying to develop expertise in that, but you need to know what your partners in other agencies, what their capabilities are and aren't so that you can work with them. So we all get some exposure to that, but by no means am I an expert in DNA or blood spatter or fingerprints, but I do know how those things are documented and collected and why. Um, With regards to gunshots, that's a really interesting question because medical examiners are not experts in how firearms work but we absolutely are experts in what they do to the human body. So our expertise is, I can tell you that's an entrance wound by doing an autopsy. I can tell you that's an exit wound. I can tell you the nature of the internal injuries that were caused by this firearm. I can tell you why, you know, a a .30-06 round is so much more lethal than a .22, all other things being equal. That's the bailiwick of medical examiners. But that's kind of where it ends. If the question is ricocheted bullets at a crime scene or could this gun have been inadvertently fired because it's got you know too light of a trigger pull, that's completely a firearms examiner's call. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, I'm Nathan Leaf. Our guest today is Andrew Baker. Chief Medical Examiner for Hennepin County. Dr. Baker's office also provides all medical examiner services to Dakota and Scott counties in southern Minnesota as well. We are discussing the important work of the medical examiner's office. Dr. Baker, we know that death occurs when there's no heartbeat or pulse, no breath, reflexes don't respond to any testing, and pupils don't dilate in response to light. Then cells begin to break down. In your office, you know it out, see it all, death as a result of anything imaginable. What makes for the most challenging cases to investigate? Perhaps decomposition or fire? You've already talked a little bit about hypothermia. Again, what are the most challenging cases to investigate? There's a variety of cases that are challenging for different reasons. Um, You did mention decomposition, and decomposing bodies can definitely be a challenge because some of the normal things you would be looking for on an intact body are simply gone. Um, You know, the, the findings on the skin, maybe even some of the internal findings. And those decomposing bodies are challenging for different reasons simply because it's those bodies have a smell to them. There's other features of them that you just sort of react to viscerally while you're performing the exam. That can be a challenge as well, and it's something that you have to get used to in this line of work. I would say the most challenging cases that we autopsy and investigate would be cases of potential fatal child abuse. Um, Children die in very different ways than adults do. You know, most adult homicides are going to involve a firearm, less commonly a knife, uh, perhaps even less commonly a strangulation. Those would all be very unusual in children. When we're talking about infants and toddlers, we're talking about blunt force injuries directed at the brain, at the chest, at the skeletal system, and those autopsies can take hours to perform. 
if the child is riddled with fractures, you are looking at hours of extra x-rays, dozens of extra microscopic slides you're making. Typically, you're going to engage the services of a neuropathologist as well, which is a pathologist who specializes in trauma and disease of the brain to assist in the examination of that case. And so for a variety of reasons, all of the things being equal, those are the most challenging cases that we investigate is potential fatal child abuse. Luckily, those cases are also quite rare, but they do take an awful lot of time. So are there cases where a cause of death cannot be determined? And in what circumstances would that take place? Yes, there are cases where we don't determine a cause of death. Um, One example would be the person who goes missing and is found dead years later in the woods, almost completely skeletonized. And you have very little left to work with. You probably will be able to identify that individual through dental records or through documentation of some sort of skeletal injury they may have had during life, whether it was a fracture or a hip replacement or whatever the Mm -hmm. case might be. But you may never know why that person died because you don't know the circumstances as to why they went missing. And obviously, there's not enough tissue left on the body to assess anything from a gunshot wound to, you know, a heart attack. Those are vanishingly rare cases, but that's that's one example. There's a fascinating category of natural deaths that don't leave any telltale signs at autopsy at all. And it's a, it's a family of genetic conditions that primarily affect the heart, and it affects the heart at the biochemical level, uh, and it causes fatal ri- uh, abnormal rhythms of the heart, which you can't document at autopsy because a rhythm is an electrical phenomenon, not an anatomical one. So if we have the sudden unexplained death of an individual, particularly one that's relatively young, and the autopsy is completely negative, and the toxicology is completely negative, and the scene investigation suggests in every imaginable way this is a natural death, what we will do is we will bank a tube of blood from that person's autopsy, and we will contact the surviving family members directly, and we will say, we're concerned that this one of these genetic conditions could be lurking in your family because you are potentially at risk. Here is the name and phone number of a genetic counselor that we want you to go and see, and we're going to give you a copy of the autopsy report to take with you, and we're going to tell the genetic counselor that we have this tube of blood so that he or she can arrange appropriate testing once they've taken a family history. That happens a couple of times a year in an office the size of mine. I mean, we serve a population of almost 1.9 million people. And I'm very proud of this fact. We've been doing what I just described for 10 or 15 years. We rolled this process of banking a tube of blood and contacting families and partnering with cardiologists and genetic counselors in the committee. We rolled that out at a national forensic pathology meeting back around 2015. And it was so well received that it is now the national standard of our organization from coast to coast that you will bank a tube of blood on every autopsy you do. And if you don't have a cause of death at the end of that investigation, you you keep that tube of blood because that's going to be like gold for those surviving family members if they need that genetic testing. Again, we're talking about a very rare type of death here. But it's one of those times where forensic pathologists may actually save lives because we're thinking ahead about what ramifications does this death have for surviving family members and what can we do to help them get tested and potentially diagnosed. I would think that most people would want an autopsy to take place to get to the bottom of a death under sudden or suspicious circumstances. But can the family of someone who has died under such circumstances block an autopsy from taking place? And do you have the authority per the law as a chief medical examiner to order an autopsy to be done? So the general answer to that is yes. The medical examiner can order an autopsy if he or she believes it's in the public interest and the case falls under our jurisdiction. Now, in Minnesota Statutes Chapter 390, there is a subsection that defines when a family can object to what would otherwise be a typical medical examiner autopsy. Um, I actually worked with several legislators and some families to craft that legislation so that families had the option to object to an autopsy, but in the overwhelming majority of cases, medical examiners could still meet the national standards for what needs to be done in certain cases here in Minnesota. 
we recognize that there are going to be religious and cultural reasons that people would object to an autopsy. And if possible, we will honor that objection at the medical examiner's office. The statute defines certain cases in which the state's interests will always trump the family's interests in not getting an autopsy done. And most of those circumstances, I think, would be self-evident to most people. If the case is a homicide, if it's the sudden unexpected death of a child, if it's an unwitnessed drowning, um, if it's a threat to the public health, obviously the state's interests are going to trump an objection the family might have. But in most other circumstances, we do, in fact, honor the family's objection. Are there ever cases that have to be re-examined a second time or even a second autopsy is performed? And what circumstances, if so? Second autopsies are pretty rare. Um, I've done a few in my career. In most cases, it's because the first autopsy missed something mm -hmm. or the person who did the first autopsy wasn't actually a qualified forensic pathologist and probably misinterpreted something. Mm -hmm. Those are pretty unusual circumstances. Um, if if an autopsy is done by a qualified forensic pathologist, a second autopsy really shouldn't be necessary because you've documented everything that a consulting expert would need to see without doing a second autopsy. You've taken so many pictures, you've created such a robust database that if the family or someone else wanted a second opinion, you would have the scores, if not hundreds of pictures, that would satisfy the needs of any expert. You know, all of the relevant biopsies, all of the relevant tests are going to be in the original autopsy report in the original medical examiner's file. So you touched on this, but I <clears throat> hope you can provide a little bit more detail. Um, given your line of work, how big of a problem are opioid and fentanyl deaths in our society today? So last year, 107,000 Americans died of drug overdoses. That's a staggering number. If you think about going back to the start of the opioid epidemic, you know, the problem was a tenth of that or even less. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem for the coroner and medical examiner system in the United States because every one of those 107,000 deaths, if it's being investigated to national standards, needs a complete autopsy and complete toxicological testing. And we simply don't have the workforce in this country to do all the cases that we're supposed to be doing, plus these additional 107,000 deaths that are from drug fatalities. Uh, we're feeling this here in Minnesota. We are definitely feeling it in Hennepin County. We had more than 500 drug and alcohol-related fatalities in my jurisdiction last year. 80% of those involved at least one opioid, and in the overwhelming majority of those cases, that opioid was fentanyl. It's, it's almost become the leading driver of autopsies in Hennepin County. I ran some preliminary numbers for our county board during an opioid summit um, a couple of months ago. Half of the autopsies we did for Hennepin County last year were driven by the fact that the death was thought to be due to drugs or alcohol. Half of the autopsies we're doing. Hmm. When I worked at death investigation, I of course had an investigative, uh, an investigative role, but I also had an awareness that I, I was at a scene where someone breathed their last and I wanted to be respectful of that and also compassionate to grieving loved ones. Dr. Baker, you are a medical examiner. You've been so for a long time. Explain your thoughts about the importance of professionalism, respect, integrity, and compassion or empathy for the dead and for the grieving. So definitely the two most important word, words you said in there were compassion and empathy. I think if you were to ask anyone who works in a medical examiner's office, whether it's the physicians, whether it's the investigators, whether it's the transcription uh, business office staff, whether it's the autopsy technicians, they would say we're doing this for the families. Mm -hmm. We are here to provide compassionate death investigation services to people who've had the worst thing imaginable happen to them, which is the sudden unexpected death of a loved one. We do this for the families. Nobody's in this for the money. Nobody's in this for the glory. We're doing this because we care about the families we serve and we want to provide them the answers that they're looking for. You work in an office where death investigation is what you do. How do you separate your work, death investigations, from the rest of your life, you know, living your life with your wife and your children, your academic and athletic pursuits, your dreams? How do you separate that? You never separate it 
entirely. There's no switch you get to hit when you walk out of the office at the end of the day that says, I'm not going to think about anything I saw today until I come back tomorrow. Sometimes I wish that switch existed, but it doesn't. What I tell people who are going into this line of work or any stressful line of work, whether it's medicine, law enforcement, any line of work that involves stress, is I say, look, you're going to go home with a bunch of energy at the end of the day that you took on from everything you saw and did today. I have seen colleagues take that energy home and channel it in very negative directions in the form of addictions, failed relationships, letting their health go, whatever the case might be. But you can take that energy home with you and it can drive you to do something that you love. In my case, it's exercise. Mm -hmm. Uh, My absolute escape is live theater, especially musical theater. Mm -hmm. If a performance is so good that I can forget what I did today and live in someone else's world for three hours, then you have succeeded as an artist. So that's what I tell people who go into this line of work. I also say it's important to keep something on your long-term horizon that really matters to you that you're working towards. Maybe it's that triathlon you're training for. Maybe it's that overseas trip you've been planning with your partner for months. Always keep a light at the end of your tunnel that will help you, again, not forget about what you did on a day-to-day basis, but at least allow you to focus on something else and maybe put your work on the back burner when you're not at the office. Regarding continuing education, in what ways do you keep up to date with the latest advancements in forensic science or even autopsy methods? Are there advancements that you foresee in the field of forensic pathology that could positively impact your work as a medical examiner? So like all physicians, we participate in continuing medical education. Um, That's required to have a license in any state in the United States. So my professional organizations put on annual scientific conferences where you are sitting in a hotel ballroom for days on end learning the latest, greatest advances in your field, all the new stuff that's coming down the pike, and you get continuing medical education for that. We also subscribe to the journals in our field, so the American Journal of Forensic Medicine and Pathology, the Journal of Forensic Sciences. Of course, those things don't exist on paper anymore. Nobody kills trees to produce journals. You subscribe to all of those electronically, and you read those journals on your iPad or on your computer screen. So yeah, so we, we have our continuing medical education. In terms of the technologies that are changing forensic pathology, by far the leading contender right now is our ability to do post-mortem imaging. Up until a few years ago, the norm was you had an x-ray machine in your medical examiner's office and you x-rayed people who were shot, stabbed, burned, etc. My office recently joined an elite group of medical examiners in North America because we now have full-time CT capability in our facility every day of the year. And so we can, we can CAT scan people from head to toe. Uh, in less time than it takes to shoot a couple of x-rays. And we can scan them at very high levels of resolution. And we're finding things that we never would have been able to document before, like subtle fractures of bones in the face that you simply can't dissect during a routine autopsy. Mm -hmm. Injuries that are very high in the cervical spine that would be very difficult to get to during a traditional autopsy, but are quite easy to document with a CT scan. Um, Even our decomposing individuals, if we're having a hard time uh, identifying them through traditional means like dental records or fingerprints, we CT them from head to toe and you get lucky because this person's got a plate in their tibia or some screws holding an old ankle fracture together and all of a sudden you have a very tantalizing clue as to who this individual was because they're now in a very small subset of the population because you had the capability to identify that stuff. Um, reading CT scans post-mortem is a pretty steep learning curve if you didn't grow up as a radiologist, which I didn't, but it's really revolutionizing the field. Um, Most people, if they're embarking on building a new medical examiner office, which we did a couple of years ago, are going to build CT into their project. Dr. Baker, we like to give our guests the final word on our program. What are some concluding thoughts? What did we miss or what would you like to add to our discussion about the important role of the medical examiner? Um, There's a couple of things I would emphasize. Uh, Number one, we already talked about this. People should know that medical examiners are statutorily and by practice completely independent of any law enforcement or prosecutorial agency. Um, Number two, 95% of what we do is public health. You're not going to read about it in the newspapers. You're not going to hear about it on a radio show 
but you know autopsying people who are victims of homicides and testifying in court is a very small part of our practice it's the most high profile part it's the part that that is mostly going to make the news but most people don't know that we autopsy all of the suicides most people don't know that the suicide rate where they live is two to three times higher than the homicide rate. Most people don't know that we're the ones autopsying all the car crash victims, all the fentanyl overdoses, all the people whose deaths were sudden and natural, but those people were just far too young and far too lacking in medical history to explain their deaths. That's that's 95% of what we do. Hmm. Well, this has been another fascinating conversation, but this is where we must end our program today. Dr. Andrew Baker, thank you for being part of Public Policy this week on KYMN. I, too, would like to thank you, Dr. Baker, for joining us in studio this morning. The objective for Public Policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. And if you don't catch the program live, you can pull up the podcast on, K- on the KYMN website or on any of our your favorite podcast services. Just look for our Public Policy This Week Capitol Building logo. Be sure to join us for next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week. Have an outstanding Friday and a great weekend, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.